Hi, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. Food Institute Managing Partner and CEO Brian Choi will be sharing hosting duties with me today as we speak with Rick Kamak, Dean of Hotel and Restaurant Management at the Institute of Culinary Education. And we're going to be speaking regarding the state of the food service industry during the pandemic and how it will likely evolve in the years to come. But first, whether you are a first-time listener or becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It really helps us to expand our reach, and we appreciate it when you do so. So with that said, I'll start off by asking Rick how he's doing today. So how are you, Rick? Uh, doing great. Uh, as you know, we have like up to 60 mile an hour winds out there. Uh, I have a balcony overlooking the Hudson and uh, things are looking a little scary, but over and above that, doing well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we're also dealing with that on our ends, but uh, I guess what we could start off with here today is that, you know, doing some research about you and your organization, it seems that you have a very interesting and diverse background, and could you please share with our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and also your responsibilities as a dean at ICE? Sure. Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll, I'll do the quick uh, backstory. I uh, got out of college with a business, uh, business administration degree. Uh, minor in uh, economics, concentration in management. It proved to do absolutely nothing for me. So uh, I went on the road with a rock group for a couple of years. Uh, came back and realized that too many years of doing that was going to add to too many burnt brain cells. So uh, I went back to school. I went to NYU and studied technology. Got a job with the city of New York. Uh, worked for a couple of consulting firms. Ultimately owned my own small uh, software development firm. Uh, and then that led to me operating divisions of billion dollar companies uh, in consult in computer consulting. And I did that all the way up into the year 2000. At that time, I kind of, I've always had the, the food and wine bug. I've always been a foodie since before the term existed. I probably ate sushi before just about anyone I know. I was always looking for the next new thing. I ended up investing in a bar. A friend needed some money to open up a bar in Murray Hill in New York. And I said, wow, that sounds like a good, fun idea. And uh, I invested in a small amount of money. It did pretty well. I doubled my investment and decided to dip my toe in the water a little further. It ended up being a lot more than a toe. And uh, my idea of Opening a, a lounge in New York's Meatpacking District ended up being a three-story operation. That was a bar, restaurant, lounge across three floors. Uh, I was still running a fairly large technology company at the side and thought this was going to be a fun side business. And I was going to open it up in four months with $400,000. And $2 million later, and almost two years later, we opened up uh, my first restaurant, which was called Five Ninth. Uh, luckily, the meatpacking district was on fire, and uh, we just blew up almost immediately. We were one of the hottest restaurants in Manhattan for many years, had a nice 10-year run, and uh, that became my first venture. Shortly thereafter, uh, literally a year after I opened my first restaurant, I opened my second restaurant, which is called Fatty Crab, and that kind of started the whole Fatty Empire, which grew to six uh, locations at one point, including St. John, New York's Virgin Islands, and Hong Kong. Over and above that, we had two spaces in Barclays Arena. We had six kiosks throughout the, uh, the New York area. And we had a food truck and we sold products through William Sonoma. We sold products to Barclays Arena as well and uh, had a pretty, uh, pretty good run for about 12 plus years. 
In 2016, as my le last lease was coming to fruition, I wasn't sure I wanted to re-up. Uh, the 24-7, 365 life was, was getting a bit much <laughs> for literally 16 years. Uh, so was doing a little consulting, and the uh, dean of the Institute of Culinary Education decided he was retiring, put it out on LinkedIn, and I said, hey, congrats on whatever it is you're going to do going forward. And he responded with, are you interested in the position? Uh, which, uh, again, I would never have considered uh, education as my strong point, but um, uh, I, we pursued it, and after a couple of months, I believe, I ended up taking the position. I also took the position of the Dean of Hotel Management, so we combined two positions into one, and I was off and running, uh, overseeing both the Culinary Management School and the Hospitality or Hotel Management School. I uh, didn't know too much about hotels, uh, except that I liked staying in them and I liked staying in nice ones, but I uh, had to learn the business very quickly, which, which I've done. And uh, it's, uh, it's actually a very exciting end of the business that I really didn't know much about, again, you know, besides staying there. So uh, that's the story today. I do, uh, I do some consulting as well. And over and above all that, I'm called on by media as a, an industry expert in, you know, numerous areas. So uh, always happy to uh, pitch in there as well. That's the background. And, and Rick, just a quick question about, about eyes. Can you share with our audience a little bit about the, the school, how many students and um, some of the, the famous alumni that came from that uh, institution? Yeah. So we, um, uh, we've been around since 1975 for starters in, in various, uh, in, various locations. It started out as the Peter Kump School in 1975. I believe it was 1995 that uh, Rick Smilo, our current CEO and president, purchased it, but I, I could be wrong about that. But uh, it's been in some form since 1975. Uh, again, I joined in, uh, in mid-2018, so I've been around for like two plus years. Um, the culinary management program it is about seven months in duration. The hospitality program is about 10 months in, uh, in duration, and it ends with an externship out in the field. Culinary management is oftentimes combined with, uh, with culinary arts. So a lot of students come in and cook in the morning and then learn management in the afternoon or vice versa. We also offer evening courses. Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact count, but we have, you know, hundreds of students per year that come through our programs, if not more. And of course, we have recreational and professional development classes that go into the thousands. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people that uh, come through our doors on a yearly basis. And as you may know, we just recently combined with our ICC, so right. our, our largest competitor locally, so to speak, uh, is now a part of our group as well. We've also made two other acquisitions over the, the last year or two, including uh, taking over the space that our uh, Le Cordon Bleu had in Pasadena, California. So uh, we have uh, that uh, area as well, which has uh, done very well for us. Great. Very interesting. And as uh, another question that we have about um, the food service industry, you know, you know, it's been extremely hit hard by the, by the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. Um, you know, we've seen bankruptcies, we, we've seen distressed sales, many independent and chain restaurants, particularly fine and casual dining categories, report financial distress. 
Um, so my question is, you know, in your opinion, where is the food service industry going over the next six to 12 months and even beyond that a, a year or two years uh, later? So, uh, you know, we, we've learned, uh, you know, a really hard lesson over the last several months. Uh, we clearly have uh, some challenges ahead of us. Um, but, you know, if the food industry is anything, it's a creative industry. There's a lot of smart people. Uh, and, you know, we're going to figure out how to pivot. And, and pivot is what we need to do. So, you know, over the next six to 12 months, as I've said to, to students, as I've said to clients, as I've said to coworkers, the first thing that you had to do when COVID hits, when it, when it hit, is that we had to, uh, you, you have to call your landlord. It's literally the first thing you have to do. Uh, you have to call the landlord and you have to work out either an incredible abatement deal. And I would, even a deferment is not good enough because a deferment just means you have another bill coming down the line. An abatement means you actually have a free month or months and you, you're going to need that. So assuming you're not getting that, you've got to work in what we call a percentage of sales rent deal. So in a percentage rent deal, you're basically paying, let's say it's 10%, which is what it should be, if not less, but you should pay 10% of your sales as rent. And you're going to need to do that until we come out of this COVID related issue. So uh, if you're doing a million dollars, your rent should be no more than 100000 a year for your occupancy cost, which in essence is your, your rent or your lease. So we, um, that's the first thing that has to be done. And honestly, if you can't make some type of deal, something close to that with your landlord, you are in trouble. You are, in fact, going to lose money. You may want to consider closing your operation um, or pivoting to, you know, a, another model that could make a lot more sense in the short term. So mm -hmm. what are those things? I mean, I think some of them at this point are somewhat obvious because you've seen some of the pivoting, but, you know, delivery, takeout and outdoor, uh, outdoor uh, sales is, or outdoor dining, I should say, is really kind of the way you have to go. So we've had to become, you know, multi-channel, so to speak, or omni-channel. Uh, we have to start thinking about how else can we make use of our space to make money. In essence, you know, half of Manhattan's turned into a ghost kitchen. Mm -hmm. You've got no indoor operations whatsoever. You may have outdoor, you may not, but you may have started to do delivery where you never would have thought about it before. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of companies applied a, a wait and see attitude to it. Uh, thinking that, I mean, I know, you know, when COVID first hit, uh, I stayed around for about a week and then left the city uh, thinking I was coming back in six days. And six weeks later, I returned to Manhattan, still not having any idea where the end is in sight. And, and I don't think we know that today. So uh, I think a lot of uh, restaurants were, were kind of looking at things the same way, like, okay, this is going to be a month, it's going to be two months, it's going to be maybe even several weeks, whatever they may have thought. But, at, you know, within the last two months, I think it's become apparent to everybody that it's going to go on a quite a bit longer. Uh, and who knows where that end is. So if you were not going to go out of business and or your landlord didn't say to you, well, just pay me nothing until things come around. And believe me, not too many of them are doing that. So you had to figure out a way. So, you know, delivery and takeout is the, the most obvious way. Some are selling groceries. That could make sense as well. Uh, this has hit every area of the industry. Uh, for instance, uh, we have uh, a company like Baldor, who I think is one of the best companies out there from a, a uh, 
food distribution standpoint. I mean, they, they pivoted to retail. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, I mean, we always talk about the restaurant business and all the things that struggle, but of course there's so many peripheral companies that are struggling it badly. They're just not getting the same press. So, you know, we're having problems across the board, but for the restaurant themselves, you know, the, the, the short-term answers are sell some product, do some takeout, do some delivery. And of course, if you can open up outdoors, by all means do so. I, I have a particular client who has 64 outdoor seats. Uh, mm-hmm. You run a pretty good business on that. Now, the, the issues you have is, you know, we're, we're always, uh, you know, worried about weather. Weather's a big issue in the restaurant industry. Right. I, I recall, you know, when I was running my own restaurants, it just starts sprinkling at five o'clock. All of a sudden, half your reservations cancel. It's an amazing phenomenon. People think they melt from rain. It usually doesn't happen. But um, we, you know, it's we've always been, you know, held, you know, we, we've always been held hostage by weather. That's just, a, you know, always been the, the story with, uh, with, uh, with weather. And now it's so many times, you know, worse than it was at that time because you always had your indoor space. Now when you're counting on outdoor and you have people that have 8 o'clock reservations and at 8.30 it pours, not only do you lose the rest of the night's business, you may have to give free the, the food that was already dying, you know, at, the, at that time, that was already eaten, because the fact of the matter is, is you're not going to have to pay their bill and leave when they're halfway through a meal. So mm-hmm. we've got all those issues as well. Now, the other thing that became incredibly hard is restaurants had never did outdoors before, and that is a somewhat different animal for some of the reasons I just explained. If you've never done delivery before and you've never done takeout before, these are all big issues. And, and let's say you've done them, but they were a very small part of your business. They represented 5%. They represented 10%. Now, all of a sudden, they represent almost your whole business. So now doing them well makes a huge difference. It's not like, okay, delivery was 10% of my business. It is what it is. We'll send out a couple of things. Hopefully, they come out okay. Now, it's like they better come out right. They better come out timely. You know, you have to worry about who your third-party vendor is, which I'm sure we're going to get to in a bit. But, um, you know, you have a lot of issues to think about and worry about. What kind of packaging am I using? Is it going to carry well? What's it going to taste like in an hour when it gets to the site? Is it going to, is it going to come to someone's home upside down? We have all those issues. And those are not issues that, any of, that some of these restaurants have ever had to deal with before. You've got high-end restaurants doing uh you know doing delivery which is incredible and if you would if you would ask them five months ago would you ever do delivery ever they would look at you like you had three heads and they probably (laughs) they'd probably admit readily that they have no idea even how to do it and they wouldn't consider it but when forced to and this is what i mean by we're a pretty pretty creative group uh when forced to do it all of a sudden we figured out a lot of things in a hurry you know, someone told us that, you know, we weren't going to be able to easily pivot to online instruction at ICE. Well, we put together the program in two weeks, and it's a phenomenal program. Right. And I would have said four or five months ago, whenever it was, I would have said, this is a terrible idea. Online just isn't going to work for us. Now I am such a huge advocate of it, and I would teach online for the rest of my career. Not only do I enjoy doing it, but the program's fantastic. So. It's just amazing what we can do when we're forced to. Um, so just to talk shortly, I guess, about you know the next year to two years, I think we have similar issues. I think what's going to change 
is that, you know, slowly but surely you're going to back away a little bit from the things that you've been spending almost 100% of your time on. Again, the takeaway, the delivery, outdoor to a degree maybe. But I think what's going to, but I think more of it's going to stay than we think. Because I just wrote a blog about this. If you look at uh, our the Institute of Culinary Education's uh, website, uh, I just put out a blog a couple of days ago, and it talks a lot about this. But ultimately, um, you know, I think that some companies, some restaurant groups, have become very comfortable with doing some of these things that they were prior uncomfortable with or would not even have considered. So, I think that you're going to see higher end groups continue to do delivery at the right. same time. I believe that we have changed our dining habits. We've mm-hmm. definitely learned to cook better over the last handful of years. Uh, I mean, over the last handful of months, I'm sorry. I believe we've, uh, we've gotten a lot more used to uh, getting delivery at home, getting, getting takeaway. Uh, we've become very comfortable sitting in front of our favorite Netflix show and having a, a pretty high-end dinner that was delivered from a pretty high-end restaurant. Uh, I've said to, I was in a blog that I've written, and I've said to many people recently, uh, I would never have considered spending $100 on delivery until COVID hit. I mean, once I get up to $50, $60, you know, my thought is I might as well go out and really, you know, enjoy myself in a restaurant. But, you know, that's changed. Uh, I, it's, I've, it's, for, it's been forced upon me. But the fact is, I've become comfortable with spending more money on delivery, getting a much better quality product, having it delivered directly to my home, relaxing in my own living room or kitchen, and, and watching a, a great show or a movie. So, so we've changed our habits as well. And because of that, I believe restaurants will be forced to stay somewhat in line with that and continue to offer us what we are now becoming accustomed to. So I think uh, the article that I wrote, the blog I wrote, was actually called Our Restaurants Becoming Their Own Biggest Competitors. And what I meant by that is, is delivery, is our own delivery now a competition to us getting in dine, in dining room service, you know, so in restaurant service. So, uh, and I think to some degree it has. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing because I think now you have other areas of revenue. You have other revenue streams and that's not a bad thing. But does it hurt your sales to some degree? I think time's going to tell. But it's going to be part of the changing, uh, you know, uh, landscape and part of this omni-channel uh, vision that we all need to move closer to. So, Rick, one of the things you brought up earlier in that discussion there was ghost kitchens, and they're also known as dark and virtual kitchens, and they're becoming more prevalent. Yeah. Uh, as a shameless plug, the Food Institute is hosting a webinar on the topic, August mm-hmm. 10th, and we're going to share a link to register for this, and you can also get a viewing of the recording if it's after that date. So I want to put that in there. But at the same time, Rick, in your estimation, is this the model of the future and how restaurants are going to operate, or do you think that we're going to have this hybrid model that you were also speaking about there where it's also you know indoor dining and also focusing on the takeout aspect? Uh, it's going to be both. I, I'm a big believer in ghost kitchens. Uh, I teach it as a professional development class. Uh, I've been asked to consult with some of the, the larger groups, uh, of which uh, I'm apparently not allowed to state. But um, uh, I've seen this coming for quite a while now, going back at least two years. Uh, I believe it is a big part of the future. I think it's a more economical way to go. Uh, another way that we're going to pivot, which is closely related to this and the last topic we talked about, I think menus are going to become more streamlined. 
Uh, and you're seeing it now with like Uber Eats, for instance. If you go to order on Uber Eats, many of the choices are not a full menu. It's a smaller menu that's easier to pick up, easier to deliver, uh, easier to get to the client quicker, probably the things that travel better. So I think we're moving in that direction. Um, ghost kitchens uh, are you know, they're becoming prevalent everywhere. I think they make up a lot of sense outside of the uh you know, the, the major metropolitan areas uh, where people can't get, uh, you know, all the, you know, the dining choices that they would like. Uh, I think that there's an opportunity for commissaries to be able to sell multiple brands out of one space. And surely that's exactly what's happening as we speak. Um, you can have the same group of people cooking those different brands. So you get to save on labor, a more streamlined menu is going to allow you to uh, to have less waste and therefore lower cost of sales. Uh, I think the, the model works for a lot of reasons. The thing that everyone is challenged with and where I think a lot of these delivery companies have really gone wrong is on the delivery side of things. Because if you get a partner with a third party, uh, your profits go out the window just like the restaurant's profit goes out the window. Ghost Kitchen has the exact same problem if they're partnering with a third party. Unless they're getting a special deal, the fees are egregious, and I would suggest that the fee you're paying is probably greater than the profit you're making on the item itself. As an argument on the uh, delivery side, that you know, if you do the research, you'll see that most of them are not making money. So whatever it is that they're charging that seems so egregious, and I would agree surely does seem to be the case, on their side, they're showing that they're not actually making money, uh, that they're not charging enough for delivery. So you've got a big challenge there. And I guess what it really boils down to is the challenge of putting someone in a car or on a bike or whatever the case may be. And when you're paying that person, let's just say for an hour, depending upon how many deliveries that person can make for an hour, that clearly could be all the profitability that's left. But all that said, and without making this a much bigger part of the conversation, uh, I, I think that the, the challenge is figuring out those logistics yourself. I'm 100% sure that the way to make money on this side of the business is you've got to do the delivery. If you use a third party, you just cannot make money. And that's a good, that's a great, great segue to you know the continuation of the of the discussion on delivery. Do you think that with you know with the Uber Eats, the DoorDashes, and the Grubhubs of the world, you know, you just mentioned they're not they're not making money, right? And so what's the future of these types of companies? You know, and, and I agree with you that, that restaurants will have their own logistics teams, you know, just to manage the cost. But what happens to these types of companies if they can't make profit even at a 20 to 30% commission? Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, we can make an argument that, uh, that restaurant groups in general uh, were built upon flawed models. And I think for years and years, that's the case. And I think, I think we'll talk about it a little later about, you know, what to do going forward. But, you know, the, our model in general is a, a single digit profitability model, which it, it just by the, the fact that I just said that makes it a flawed model because you don't have to do too many things wrong to bring single digits down to zero or a negative number. So I, I think that, you know, uh, food delivery companies have a similar problem. They've got to figure out, they've got to work the logistics better. Uh, there are companies that are now doing something that could be the answer to that. There's a company now called, uh, it's called Cater Cow, but they came out with a product called Fair. 
and FAIR offers a limited, uh, limited delivery, uh, meaning a limited menu. Uh, to uh, and they basically what they do is they are purchasing in in groups, meaning that they're taking like an area and and delivering bulk to that area so that they can cut down on the cost. And without getting into the particulars, the idea of it makes sense because once you've traveled to an area, I mean, think about the New York City area. And if you had to go from the Upper West Side to, you know, up to the Bronx, down to the Lower East Side, to Fidei, so on and so forth, uh, there's almost no way to make money unless you've come up with a smarter way to do that delivery. Clearly, there are other uh, you know, companies in the world that have figured out uh, somewhat better models in terms of how to get things delivered where you're going. I mean, Amazon would probably be the perfect example of that. You know, I walk into my lobby at any given day and there's 500 boxes from Amazon down there. So, it's, uh, I mean, I think doormen have really become their own delivery men, but uh, <laughs> it's the craziest thing. I'm sure they're not too pleased about it, but they're in a whole new line of business now. But anyway, um, I think what's going to happen is you know, you've got the cater cows of the world and you've got people, other companies that will come up. And I'm sure there's a few others that are out there. There's also a company called uh, Chow Now, uh, and they're offering something through Instagram where there's a, a one-time monthly fee for ordering. And I'm guessing, I don't know what their logistics model is, so I couldn't say, but I'm guessing it's also going to be based upon we go to an area and we hit it hard as opposed to uh, basically just, you know, sending out drivers all over the place. Not that I'm saying that there's no logistical intelligence to the third parties out there today because they all do have their own proprietary ways of doing this, but clearly it's not yet making sense. They're not yet making money. And so they have to pivot as well. They got to figure out a better way. And if they don't, they're in trouble. And we know that these fees are going to get pushed down, whether it's from competition or whether it's from uh, something regulatory. Ultimately, these fees are going to either temporarily or permanently get pushed down from one of those things. So ultimately, again, they're going to have to find a better way or they're just not going to last either. Uh, so Rick, what are the top three food trends you're following currently? And what do you see those trends impacting the way people eat food? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, kind of broadly speaking, uh, quicker and healthier is clearly a way that we've been going for several years, and I don't see that doing anything but increasing. Um, we want, you know, if you think about, you know, delivery, takeaway, or even grab and go, uh, if you think about what that was several years ago, uh, the options were so few and far between and usually not heavy, greasy, not well prepared. And then if you think about what you can get today, I mean, including meal kits and, and unbelievable grab and go and incredible salads and all kinds of healthy drinks. And, and I, what we're learning is that people, I don't know, they seem to be in more of a rush, but ultimately people want to eat quicker. Uh, I did a study with a marketing company who uh, hired me to give them advice on on where the snack trends were going. And this is really what I came up with. And that is, you know, people want to eat quicker. They want to eat better. They want to eat healthier. Uh, they want it more convenient. They want you to put it together for them or give them really easy advice on how to put it together yourself. And any businesses that are going down that path, I, I think, are still on a growth trend that has not that is not going to slow down anytime soon. 
Um, as we, well, I, I think another thing that I'm very intrigued by that I think is here to stay, which we talked about earlier, is I think high-end uh, high-end delivery and catering. It, it's going to happen. We've changed the way we eat. You know, again, myself as a person that never would have spent $100 on delivery, you know, I just recently spent approximately $250 on a home delivery. So, you know, my, my, my the way I dine has changed. I don't know if that those offerings continue to be there. I will I will make use of them. But forget about the 250. That happened to be a special occasion for me. But the point is, is that we, we've changed the way we look at things. And as restaurateurs, we've changed our thoughts about how we're going to offer things. And I think that companies that never thought about it, restaurant groups that never thought about delivery before are going to continue to deliver. And I think those those restaurant groups are going to do very well doing so. Last but not least, uh, we talked we talked about food kitchens, but the next wave there is going to be food hall ghost kitchens. Uh, I've been thinking about this for at least a year now. There's at least uh, one company I know of that's starting something similar. There may be one out there that's doing it already. But the idea of think about going into a food hall. And saying you want, thinking about the fact that you may want to get things from numerous different places. So you want a pizza from this guy, you want a hamburger from this guy, and you want a donut from the other, this mm-hmm. other uh, kiosk uh, for dessert. But if you were going to get delivery from that food hall today, you'd be putting in three different delivery orders. That's number one. Number two, it's highly likely that your ice cream could come before your pizza. So the idea of this virtual food hall where I can say, I want pizza from Gino's and I want a hamburger from Shake Shack and I want, uh, you know, an ice cream from Ice Cream World. And it's all going to come together. It's going to come on one bill through one transaction, through one delivery mechanism, and you're going to get it and be able to have that at home. I think that's going to be unbelievable. And I think it represents the future of Ghost Kitchens. Great. No, that's that's very fascinating. I uh, appreciate your uh, your thoughts on that. Um... And uh, as a final question, Rick, you know, uh, you know, as a dean of ICE, you know, you're preparing this, the next generation of, of food professionals, right? And so, you know, in the wake of COVID, and you mentioned a few of the the things that you're, you know, that you're seeing in the in the food service world, from the pivoting to understanding how delivery works um, to, to exploring even outdoor dining, um, you know, how are you preparing this next generation, right? And and has the curriculum shifted? Um, you know, in the past three months, given all that's what's been what's been happening. Yeah. So uh, the curriculum has shifted. I mean, the same we have nine courses within a within a program uh, for culinary management. We haven't changed the nine courses, but the content has clearly changed with COVID being a big part of it. But as I've stated in, in numerous articles now and uh, blogs and of course, when I talk to my students about it, and really anyone else that wants to listen is, you know, COVID, for lack of a better term, caught us with our pants down. And really what it did is it showed us the flaws that we have in our industry that wasn't going to take five months to rear its ugly head. Because in, in two weeks, we had similar problems. I mean, ultimately, we are not a well-capitalized uh, industry. We are not strong in training. Uh, our management group uh, or our, our management ranks are typically, again, not trained well. They usually come up from the ranks with no prior management training before it. 
Uh, typically, the way we train in a restaurant, whether it be back of the house or front of the house, is we say follow this person for a couple of days, and after that, you become that person. And you know that's training in the restaurant world. And now I'm not talking about all restaurant groups, but I am talking about most, and I'm surely talking about a large percentage of the independents. You know, we're not strong on management. We're not strong on leadership. We don't teach those things well. We don't have a great understanding of operations, and that's a critical, critical flaw. So if you ask the average person in the restaurant business, what is a restaurant made of from a uh, from an organizational standpoint? Most will say the back of the house and the front of the house. So the front of the house is, you know, your servers and your, your bartenders and your uh, runners, whatever the case may be. And the back of the house is your chefs and your sous chefs and your prep cooks, your line cooks. But then there's a third piece. It's called operations. It's that invisible piece that sits up above both sides and makes everything work properly or not. And it's another thing that we don't learn very much about. We don't train for it. Now, there are people that go to school for it, of course, and uh, those restaurant groups that hire those people get great benefit from that. But oftentimes, that's not the case. You know, a chef and a front-of-the-house person get together, open a restaurant, and off they run. And they don't really know a hell of a lot about the ratios and the uh, the KPIs, the key performance indicators that you have to hit in order to be successful. And therefore, we fail. Uh, we have no disaster plans whatsoever. And I'm pretty sure a lot of restaurant groups going forward are going to have disaster plans in place. Last but not least, we are typically and traditionally undercapitalized. So we typically do not open up with enough money. So we're behind the eight ball from day one. And it puts enormous pressure on any kind of stoppage of work. And as I said earlier, it could be two weeks could put restaurants out of business. A month, surely. Two months, yep. <laughs> you know, 33% of us are going to close our doors. So we've learned a lot of lessons, and some of these things we've known all along, some of them we haven't, but it surely became very obvious over the last five months, and no one expected it to be that long, and no one should have planned for anything this long. Something a lot shorter could have stopped us dead in our tracks as well. So we've learned those lessons, and we are teaching them in our curriculum. So I think that about wraps it up for us on the Food Institute podcast this week. Uh, Rick, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your organization? Anyone can reach me at rcamac at ice.com, ice.com. You can surely look up ice.edu to learn about our curriculum, our hotel management program, our culinary management program, of course, our arts programs as well. Uh, And uh, yeah, those would be the best ways to find us. So on behalf of Brian and myself, I just want to thank you again for your time today, Rick. Uh, Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership could do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. 